welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com podcasts. The Attorney General of Missouri has spent his 14 months in office pursuing attention-grabbing cases. Josh Harley's biggest target yet is Alphabet, Google's parent. On February 27th, Harley formally launched a campaign for the U.S. Senate. He's running as the favorite to win the Republican nomination in what's arguably the most important race in the 2018 midterm elections. Joining me is Josh Brustein. He's Bloomberg News technology reporter. Josh, is Harley on a crusade against the tech industry? Well, we'll see. He certainly seems to think that it's useful for him to position himself as a critic of Google, um, which is interesting because you have a Republican official who is making a case to basically bring government action against a very successful, very innovative private company. So what is Harley's investigation at this point concentrating on as possible legal violations by Google? Yeah, so there's two things that he's going to be looking at, or that he's already looking at. The first is privacy. Um, He wants to know whether Google is misusing uh, personal information and whether it's communicating uh, to its users in a way that's not completely honest. Um, The other thing is an antitrust violation. That would be whether Google is abusing its dominant power as a search engine to gain an advantage over competitors. Um, The most obvious example of this is um, it's if you type Google if you type like a restaurant into Google you'll you won't just send you to websites you'll see some information right away and um, critics say that Google is basically cutting out companies like Yelp by taking their information and just presenting it to you right away without ever sending you to their site. So Google has had several encounters with antitrust claims, including the EU's record $2.7 billion fine, which is on appeal. Tell us about the FTC's investigation of Google. Yeah, so the FTC looked into similar allegations uh, starting in 2011. It decided not to bring a lawsuit. In 2012, and 2013, there were a number of um, settlements announced with Google where the commission basically said, we've looked at these issues. Google has agreed to make some changes in its behavior and other issues we think are just not um, are just not relevant. And so we're satisfied. Now, that doesn't mean that all of Google's critics were satisfied. And so that's kind of the reflection of that is what we're seeing in the Holly investigation. How much of an uphill battle would a lawsuit, this kind of a lawsuit against Google, be in U.S. courts? Yeah, so it would be an uphill battle. Uh, first of all, just practically, uh, Google has much more resources than the Missouri Attorney General's <laughs> office does, and so just in terms of you know the actual battle, that would be an, an issue. And and Holly hopes to get other states involved, which I think is really a big factor into whether this proceeds. Um, the other thing is just that American antitrust law is much. Uh, more permissive than European antitrust law. And so the fact that a um, European court found something there doesn't mean that a U.S. court will find something here. Civil lawsuits, we know, take a long time, years perhaps. But a lawsuit doesn't have to be a winner to damage a company. And uh, you wrote about Microsoft as an example. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, Microsoft was the target of the most prominent antitrust case brought against an American technology company. It started in the 1990s. 
companies. In the end, it didn't really result in a major finding against Microsoft. It made some adjustments. Um, but pe both people who supported that case and those who criticize it say that a major outcome was that Microsoft was a little bit careful going forward um, because of those lawsuits and ended up getting outmaneuvered by companies like Google that was kind of an upstart at the time. So Hawley says he'll make a decision on whether to bring charges this summer when his Senate campaign will be in full swing. How much of this is politically motivated? Well, whenever you see an attorney general bring a high-profile case, um, it is there's a political calculation in there, especially when that uh, attorney general is also running for office. I do think that one thing that we might see here is Holly, whether or not this case goes forward, is kind of testing out whether positioning himself against Google is a good is a good thing to do, even as a senator. And the, the end result of this might not be a lawsuit, but it might be something that he tries to do as a legislator. And I think that's something to watch. He's been in office for 14 months. He's already running for a Senate seat. That's a pretty quick turnaround. Yeah. And, and ironically, part of Holly's campaign for attorney general was him saying, I'm not just going to use this as a stepping stone to get to the next office. Um, he had this now embarrassing commercial where he sort of walks through a sea of ladders and says, I'm not just a ladder climbing politician. So I'm sure you will see that in some of the opposition ads against him. He is certainly open to criticism that he's um, really rising quite quickly. And tell us a little bit about his race, how, how pivotal it is. Yeah, so um, Holly is running against Claire McCaskill. She's a Democrat. Um, she's been in term. Uh, she's been in office for two terms. She uh, is running in a state that went very heavily for Trump, and is seen as an unusually vulnerable Democratic incumbent. Now, the the Democrats are trying to win the Senate. To do so, they have to capture some Republican seats, but they also have to defend their own seats. And so, if McCaskill loses, that will put the party in a pretty tough spot. Are there other attorney generals, state attorney generals, looking into possible charges against Google, or is he the only one? So this is the first antitrust suit, or it's not a suit yet, it's an investigation that's been brought by a state attorney general since the FTC decided against pursuing its own case. Now, Holly's office says that there are other states that are very involved and very um, excited about potentially joining on. We haven't heard from any of those states. We will see if we do. But at the moment, he's kind of out there on his own. And uh, Google says it's cooperating with his investigation. Just in about 30 seconds, do you think uh, Google has much to worry about from him? Well, I think that this case is probably not at the top of the list for Google um, to be worried about. I do think that what the company is worried about is it indicates a broader atmosphere of skepticism and hostility towards Silicon Valley, and that can really build in unpredictable ways. And that's what Google has to watch out for. Always a pleasure to have you on. Thanks so much. That's Josh Brustein, Bloomberg News technology reporter. President Trump declared the opioid crisis a national public health emergency in October. There are now more than 400 lawsuits against the manufacturers and distributors of opioid painkillers. Joining me is James Ferraro, founder of the Ferraro Law Firm. He's representing plaintiffs in about 24 cases in several states. He's also the author of the book Blindsided, which recounts his decade-long courtroom battle against chemical giant DuPont. Jim, there are more than 400 federal lawsuits consolidated in what's called a multi 
multi-district litigation, or MDL, before Ohio federal judge Dan Polster. Describe the complexity with so many theories and plaintiffs with different interests. Well, you know, it, 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 it is kind of, uh, it looks like a quagmire on its face. And, and, and the biggest problem with the uh, litigation is that there are uh, there's so many uh, uh, manufacturers, distributors. Then, you, are, you know, on the manufacturer level, you also have the generics. Then, you know, that, so, so you have a lot of targets. And then, um, you know, and then there's, there's about half a dozen doctors that were involved in promoting it. So you got a lot of targets. Then on the other side, you have claimants coming out from all over the place, and there's several types. There's these uh, third-party claimants, sort of like unions for their health funds, where they they spend a lot of money on you know addiction and treatment and that type of thing. And um, then you've got the governments, the you know, state governments that are trying to recover for losses on Medicaid, Medicare, uh, the criminal justice system, their hospital, police, and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of elements to it, and. Um, but the one thing that I think there is one one part to the case that is a common denominator for everyone, and that is where does liability begin and where does liability end? And, and that really is going to come down to the threshold on where there's responsibility. For instance, these opiates, um, they're perfectly fine for end-of-life care. That's what they, that's like morphine and things of that nature. That's perfectly fine and it's legal and that's what, that it is supposed to be prescribed for that. The other side of the spectrum where there's, you know, pretty clear liabilities where they got overprescribed. You know, when I was a kid and I got my wisdom teeth pulled, I was prescribed extra strength Tylenol. Now you can get a four 30-day renewals for opiates when you get your wisdom teeth pulled, which is obscene. Now yes. that's clear liability. So the, 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 the threshold is going to be somewhere between the clear liability there and the end-of-life care. And once that threshold there, it'll apply to everybody. Let's move to uh, some of the things happening in the multi-district litigation. The judge made news, at least in legal circles, when he told the lawyers he wanted to put litigation efforts like discovery on hold so the lawyers could engage in settlement discussions. Briefly, how did that unorthodox move go? Well, you know, I mean, I think the, the judge polls to the, 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 what he's doing, I, what, I, it, what I think is correct is to try to resolve the behavior, which, in other words, is get get the conduct changed, because there's like 150 people a day dying in the United States. And that's where he wants to go first, and I think he's correct. After that, he wants to get into the monetary components, you know, who gets, who is damaged, how much, and that to him is less important, maybe not to the litigants, but to, to Judge Poston, but I think he is right on that. You really need to get the behavior changed first, cut off the bleeding, and um, which is to everyone's benefit, and then move into the monetary components. The problem is there's so many moving parts, and there's so many different, like I, I talked about previously, there's so many targets, and there's, you know, it's, it's just not like tobacco, where you have, like, you know, four major tobacco companies, and, you know, it's their product, and it's just, you know, basically one-on-one, you know, but that's not what you have here. Well, the the companies want a settlement that would resolve state lawsuits as well, and the judge wants a deal addressing the company's business practices and the roots of the crisis. Does that seem like an overwhelming ask? It's a big ask. I mean, it's, I mean, it, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's not easy because there's so many players that could come out of the woodwork. I mean, where does it end? I mean, you know, some of the, some of the damages are going to be easy to calculate. You know, for instance, if you've got, like, Medicare losses, you know, like how much was spent on Medicare for opiates that were improperly prescribed and treatment and so on. So, At the government level, you've got a lot more than that. 
so now the judge uh, saw that that wasn't moving forward as as quickly as he liked. So he's cleared the way for the lawyers to start uh, collecting evidence, et cetera. He's giving both sides until March 16th to come up with a litigation plan. About a minute. Is that doable? I mean, it's it's doable, and in, in, you know, a, a litigation plan, uh, a general litigation plan, is definitely doable in that amount of time. I mean, there's no question. But he's got to get the steering committee together and assign that out to all the different firms. Like, there's going to who's going to do discovery on the corporate reps, or you know, for pharma, and who's going to do it on, you know, you know, uh, McKesson and so on and so forth. But the the actual general plan, I think, you can get in place. The execution of it, it's going to take a lot longer. And uh, about thirty seconds here. Has there have you seen uh, an MDL that's been this complex before? This will probably be the most complex MDL in history because that, of all the moving targets. It, that it's it certainly sounds like a, a big task facing that Ohio judge and the plaintiffs and defendants in this case. Thanks so much for joining us, Jim. That's James Ferraro. He is the founder of the Ferraro Law Firm, and his book is called Blindsided. It's about his decade-long courtroom battle against chemical giant DuPont. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.